Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. And we have a guest speaker this morning, and uh, many of you will know or recognize him. Uh, Eric Seidel has been a part of our community since 2000, you know, four, I don't know, we're just, we're just making stuff up at this point. Uh, no, a long, long time y'all have been around, and uh, the Seidels are a faithful, faithful family in our church community. Eric does a lot of behind-the-scenes presence and uh, is, is just a meaningful voice in our church and also has a theological background and a ministry background. And so Eric's going to speak to us today from John 2 on the wedding at Cana. Uh, many of you know uh, Eric's wife, also Morgan, is on our staff team and uh, loves alliteration. So she does community and coordination and communication. Uh, and we, you know, we worked up those three C's just for her. And they've got a son, EJ, who uh, is around here somewhere as well. So we love the Seidels, and we're excited for EJ. Or no, not, EJ's not going to speak. That would be a different experience for Eric to speak this morning. So to get us ready for that, I'm going to invite you to stand one final time for a bit. We're going to read from the Gospels. Whenever we read from the Gospels, we stand as a way of embodying a posture of recognition that Jesus is speaking to us. And so we'll hear from John 2. Keith's going to lead us in our scripture reading. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, thank you for that, Jordan. And thank you, Keith, for reading. Um, good morning, y'all. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come speak with you guys. Um, as Jordan mentioned, my name is Eric. Um, Morgan and I have been here four to five years or so. Don't know when, 15, 2016 or something, I'm not sure. Um, what I wanted to say to the first service was, you may know my wife more than you know me, but what came out was, you may know my wife more than I do. <laughs> so taking a moment to correct that, you may know my wife more than you know me. Um, but, uh, but um, yeah, we've been here for four or five years. We love it here. We think of you all as family, as just a family of faith. And so the opportunity to worship with you guys is just a blessing to us and the opportunity to come speak to you guys about um, John 2. 
is, uh, is a special thing for me as well. Um, our gospel reading, as we mentioned, is out of John 2, and it's the wedding at Cana. And it's this very well-known passage of Jesus turning water into wine, right? And the lectionary gives us this passage because we're in this season of epiphany. And in the season of epiphany, it's this time where we celebrate the manifestation of Jesus to the world. That word epiphany comes to us from the Greek word epiphaneia, which means to make an appearance or manifestation. So in this season of epiphany, the focus for the church tends towards Jesus' manifestation to the world as God's son and savior to all people. Right. So just as a refresher, last time we worshiped together, we were on Epiphany Sunday. And Epiphany Sunday is when the three wise men came and were looking for Jesus to proclaim him as the king of the world, the coming king of the world. When they found him, they bowed down, they worshiped him. This manifested Jesus' glory. Right? For us this morning, we continue that theme, that theme of manifesting Jesus' glory in, in the wedding at Cana in John 2. It's the first <clears throat> event of Jesus' public ministry, and it continues that theme of manifestation. I want to set the scene for our reflection here, right? I want to set the scene, and so I want to start us off by reading John 2, verse 1 and 2. So it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples, Right? with his disciples. Now, as we enter into this text, as we enter into the scene, what I want us to do is to take the perspective of the disciples, right? I want us to take the perspective of the disciples because if we as readers are anyone, we're the disciples. We are the disciples. What's helpful to know about the disciples is that they don't actually do anything in this story, right? They, we see them here in the beginning, and they show up again at the end. They don't do anything in between, right? And I think that's intentional, because what I'd, what I'd like to think that they're doing is that they're sitting there watching, observing, being still and listening to the things that Jesus is doing, just watching. Now, at the end of John 1, just before this, it is John's version of Jesus calling the disciples, right? Um, and... In John 1, we learn a lot about Jesus. We, we, we have the prologue. We have the baptism of Jesus. The disciples hear about all this. We learn about Jesus. We learn about who he is and what he's doing. The disciples have some information about this. So they approach Jesus at the end of John 1 with some curiosities and some questions and some interests, wanting to know more. And so Jesus' first words to them when he sees the disciples is, Come and see. Come and see. If you want to learn more, come and see for yourself. Come and learn what this is all about, what God is doing through Jesus. They're not quite 100% bought in. They have questions, but they're being invited into it. If we are anyone in this story, we're the disciples. So the thought I want us to ponder as we take that perspective, and we see these two ideas converge, this idea that epiphany is is witnessing the manifestation of Jesus, and this idea that the, the disciples are being invited to watch. What I want us to ponder is, what does this event mean to the disciples? What does this event mean to the disciples, this miracle of water being turned into wine? What does it mean to them, and by extension, 
What does it mean to us? What does it mean to us? Because personally, just personally, I don't think Jesus turning water into wine is all there is in this story. I don't think Jesus is doing this just to show us he can control the elements. I think there's more to it than that. I think he's trying to reveal to the disciples something deeper, something more meaningful, right? And so when you read the text, and when you go through the text, which is what we're going to do, we get to meet a bunch of different characters, as do the disciples. They get to meet a bunch of different characters. And every character in this story is impacted by Jesus' actions differently. They're all impacted differently. And the way they're impacted all constitutes their own unique gift, its own unique blessing. And the disciples are there to observe it. They're there to see it. And it calls us back to that invitation that Jesus has to them. Come and see. Come and see what this is all about and observe what I have to do here. Right? So I want to take us on a literary journey here. Right? I want us to go through the text with that perspective of the disciples. So going to verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Right? They have no wine. The first gift that we run into, the first of these blessings is that the disciples get to see comes to us through Mary in the wedding family. And it's the gift of a loving relationship with God. The gift of a loving relationship with God. Now, the wedding family doesn't get a direct reference here, right? They're, they're in the story, but they don't get directly referenced. They're represented by Mary and her compassionate plea to Jesus. <clears throat> now, and then the other thing I want to call out is to run out of wine in this context is a huge embarrassment for them. This is a huge embarrassment, and it's humiliating to them. For us today, if a wedding, if the wedding bar runs out, it's not really that big of a deal, right? It's kind of a downer, but <laughs> it's a downer. But in their culture, it would have been humiliating to the family. They would have carried a lot of shame, which we'll talk about later. Mary approaches Jesus with this struggle. She approaches Jesus with this pain, this challenge, by saying, quite simply, they have no wine, right? There's no request in there. There's no question, no verbalized petition. This just this unspoken hanging expectation that Jesus, that Mary presents to Jesus. <clears throat> in Jesus' response to her, it's a bit, it's a bit hard, and I've really been wrestling with this. But I think, well, let's unpack this. So he says, and Jesus said to her, "Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." It's a bit cold, and he doesn't quite jump at the same level of compassion that Mary does. But I think Jesus is ready to respond to her petitions. He's just trying to reframe her expectations around what it means to relate to God and to bring God these petitions. Note two things about his response to Mary. Number one, he never says no. He never says no outright. I think it suggests that he's ready to respond. He's willing to respond. He just needs her to understand something, which is the next thing. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, implying that any form of response that you're expecting from Jesus needs to be done in God's timing. 
He's ready to respond, but he needs her to understand that it has to be in God's timing. God is always ready to hear our petitions. God is always ready to hear our calls, our struggles. In the same way that Mary brings them to Jesus, God invites these exchanges with us. We just have to accept that it's on God's terms when we bring those petitions to God. He's ready to respond. He just needs Mary to know that it needs to be done in God's terms. So Mary responds in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She's relinquishing authority at this point. She's accepting that whatever Jesus' response is going to be, it's going to be on his terms, and it's going to be good. She releases the wedding servants to do whatever he says. This starts to build this loving relationship with God that she can start to accept that God is always ready to respond, that Jesus is ready to respond, but that it has to be done in God's terms. It's kind of a, like the love of a parent for a child, this loving relationship that God has <clears throat> for Mary, for us, the love of a parent for a child. I'm reminded of my own son, EJ, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, four, four years old, missing front tooth. You'll see him running around with Noah after church. Um, I think God has the same heart for us that I or any other parent would have for their child. I hear God saying in Jesus' words, I love you, I'm here for you, I will be with you wherever you go and be alongside any struggle you have, not to give you everything you want, but to give you everything you need and in the timing that you need it. Jesus is establishing this loving relationship with God for Mary and for the wedding guests, or for the wedding family. That is the first gift that we see, the gift of a loving relationship with God. And the disciples are there to see that, the gift of a loving relationship with God. The second gift that the disciples get to see in the scene, that we get to see in the scene, comes to us through the wedding guests. The wedding guests. So going on to verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water jars, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some water, draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. The wedding guests, and the gift that we see here is the gift of joy. The gift of joy. The wedding guests, I'm sorry. Yeah, the wedding guests are never actually introduced in the story, but they are a present force in the narrative. Because, after all, if the wine runs out, they're going to be the ones that cause the most ruckus, right? They're going to be the ones that cause the most pain for the wedding family. So they are a present force in this story. Wine itself, wine itself is a symbol of joy. It has a lot of meaning in, in other parts of the text, especially for Jesus, pointing to the cross, but in this case, in this wedding, it's a symbol of joy because it's frequently used in the Old Testament as a, to paint a picture of the great wedding feast, right? The great wedding feast is an image often invoked in the Old Testament where God is prophesied to come and make his dwelling with all of Israel. He will come, redeem all of Israel, make his dwelling. There will be a great wedding feast. There will be wine. There will be a big feast. Isaiah 25 says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
and the people will rejoice and be glad. There's this symbolism of wine that's rooted in that promise that God will come to make a dwelling with people. And it actually makes weddings a sacred space. It makes weddings a sacred space. It makes this, this idea that God is, is present in, these, in, in, in a wedding ceremony, similar to the way it is for us. So a wedding becomes a worship event where wine becomes a symbol of joy, right? The other thing to mention, in verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification. Now, I think John, John goes through a lot of detail to explain these water jars. It takes up its, a whole verse. Now, thing to call out, Six water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. This is a stone water jar, right? I, I wanted to bring in a 30-gallon lawn trash bag to give further context to how big these things are. And this, these aren't quite 30 gallons, but to put that image together with this gives you an idea of how significant, how much volume these things carry. So with a wedding being a sacred place and these stone water jars being present, all the participants had to go through this purification process, this hand-washing experience. It was a practice that was required of them. Anybody that entered into that wedding, into that sacred space, had to wash their hands. It was required by law. So whether it be you were entering the temple or a wedding or the synagogue, you had to use these water jars to sort of wash your hands. Now, I want us to think about this. These water jars were required to facilitate a relationship with God. They were required to facilitate unity with God. You could not enter these places without it, without using the function of these water jars. The water jars were used to get closer, and without them, access to God was restricted. By using the water jars for the wine, Jesus repurposes them all together. So now once these water jars were used as objects for us to get to God, are now objects God is using to bless us with. He's reversing the order. They were used to get to God, and now God is using them to bless us. To bless us with a gift of joy, with a gift of abundance, with a gift of wine. No exchange, no reciprocation needed, no requests from Jesus, no hand washing required. Jesus just gives it, and he gives it abundantly to the wedding guests. Now, for, for more context, a single bottle of wine today is about 750 milliliters. And if you do the math on this, and I had, I had to Google this. <laughs> I had to Google it. That quantity equates to about 800 bottles of wine, Right? 800 bottles of wine. This is the gift of abundant joy for the wedding guests. No hand washing, no extra amounts of holiness. Jesus gives it and he gives it abundantly. The gift of abundant joy. When I think of the gift of abundant joy, I can't help but think of our own wedding. Morgan didn't know I was doing this until this morning. Um, this is a picture of me and Morgan at our wedding. There I am doing the air guitar. There's Morgan dancing. This is her cousin, by the way. That's not some guy <laughs> pulling a move. So this is a, a, the gift of abundant joy, right? 
So the third gift and final gift that we see comes to us through the bride and groom. And it's the gift of grace. The gift of grace. In John 9, John 2, verse 9, it says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it become wine, and did not know where it came from, the master, call, master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast is clearly ob- oblivious. He has no idea what just happened. He has no clue that Jesus is the source of this abundant wine. And his first reaction is to go to the groom and say, hey, this is great, almost to congratulate, almost to applaud him for the abundant wine. He has no idea where it came from, right? Now, we talked a little bit about the, the problem with running out of wine, right? We talked about having no wine would have impacted the family. It would have been a huge embarrassment. But the bride and groom in particular would have been carrying a lot of shame with them because of it. If wine would have run out, the bride and groom would have carried shame with them for a long time. One commentator suggested that the marriage between the two of them would be branded a disgrace, the host family shamed, and the new, family, the new married couple would carry the social stigma of shame with them the rest of their days. Hospitality was a big thing for them, so running out of wine would have been a breach in that hospitality, and so shaming them would have been pretty severe. Shame. Shame itself, and I'm, I'm even reluctant to talk about this, but it, it's there, and I, and I want us to call it out. Shame itself is an internal state of inadequacy or unworthiness that we carry with us, where we think we are unworthy. Shame can be triggered in us by an event where we fall short of expectations, whether that be our expectations or someone else's. And it's a hard thing to heal because it causes us to to devalue ourselves because of one shortcoming, but then it can grow with further shortcomings, whether they're valid or not. It's a painful thing and something that we all wrestle with one way or another. Shame. This is what this couple would have been carrying for a long time had Jesus not intervened. And so, Jesus' actions really call something out to us. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, now, the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from. The master of the wedding feast doesn't know where it came from, and he goes to congratulate the groom. Take note, Jesus never takes credit for the miracle. Jesus never takes credit for it. Jesus spares the bride and groom of any possible shame, by never publicizing the fact of what he just did. Instead, he lets the bride and groom take the credit for it, sparing them of any possible shame. This really changes from from the other gospel stories where Jesus is constantly in front of all the crowds and in all the people and teaching all these different things and taking, not necessarily taking credit, but making things well known that he is the source of these things. Here he does it quietly, He does it discreetly with only a few people knowing about it, right? When I was 19, um, 20 plus years ago, and I had just become a Christian, and my parents were going through a divorce, right? My parents were going through a divorce, and 
And in that um, painful experience, I remember feeling the weight of responsibility. I remember feeling like somehow this was my fault. I was a kid. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this now at all, but back then I thought somehow this is my responsibility. And I'll never forget my youth pastor looking at me directly in the eye. We had lunch one day, and he looks me directly in the eye, and I tell him all that, and he says, Eric, none of that is your fault. That is not your responsibility. You need to release that. You cannot carry that. And when he said that to me, I remember feeling completely released. I remember feeling the relief that this burden was no longer mine. My youth pastor here, someone I looked up to and frequently saw God through, helped me trade my shame for grace. Helped me trade my, gra- my shame for grace. God does the same for us. The gift of grace. This third and final gift is the gift of grace. God invites you to trade your shame for grace. So here we are. We're going to start wrapping up here. We have our three gifts, the gifts of a loving relationship with God, the gift of joy, and the gift of grace. Let's start to come to a close here by asking our original question. What does this mean for the disciples? What does this mean for us, this event of water being turned into wine? I think what he's trying to provide them, what he's trying to do is to provide them a glimpse into the abundant life of following Jesus. The wedding at Cana provides the disciples and us with a glimpse into the abundant life of following Jesus. That's the manifestation. A revelation into the abundant life that comes with following him. Because following him brings with it the gifts of a loving relationship, the gift of joy, and the gift of grace. And so it ends, it concludes here, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed him. The abundant life of following Jesus.